0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control Alt Delete. My guest today is Christina Crook, digital mindfulness thought leader, speaker, and the host of the Jomo Cast podcast, which is all about Jomo, the joy of missing out. She is also the author of Good Burdens and The Joy of Missing Out, and has been called the Marie Kondo of Digital by Harper's Bazaar, which sums up her work really well. Christina's own battle with digital overwhelm and balance led to her writing these books and her advice around mindfulness, living joyfully and prioritizing our well-being is really powerful and practical. In today's episode, we are discussing her latest book, Good Burdens, which I absolutely loved. It's all about taking a step back from screens, realigning our energies, putting our love into the things that we really do love increasing intentionality with our screens and devices and also prioritizing our well-being in the digital age. There are loads of synergies with my book Disconnected, we are so on the same page and I absolutely loved that and loved reading the book. So here is the episode, I hope you really love it. So I think we should kick off with the title of the book. And I will say before I do that the subtitle is How to Live Joyfully in the Digital Age, which just felt so you know, on a par with what what I've been talking about as well. And there's yeah, a sense of being a kindred spirit to you with this book. So I just loved it. But the title is Good Burdens. And I just thought we could kick off with you describing what that is and what that means and where it came from, from one of your lovely wise friends as well. And um, we can take it from there.
1: Absolutely. So burdens have quite a negative connotation. I think we will all feel overburdened right now. And so I'm really glad that you're starting um, with this, with the definition of what good burdens are. So good burdens actually um, is a term that was coined by a philosopher of technology named Dr. Albert Borgman. He's a professor emeritus at the University of Montana, now well into his 80s. Um, but he, he came up with this term um, in his book, technology in the shape of contemporary life. And you know, we think back like 30, 40 years ago, what the shape of contemporary life was at that time, right? That's pre cell phones, pre internet, pre all the things, but already then noticing the ways in which technology was promising us, you know, convenience and control and comfort and all the things that we're, um, delighted by, uh, each and every day, but he focused. And the idea with good burdens is that there's certain activities that once you get across a certain threshold of effort, the burden of them disappears and they become a joy. So the burden of, you know, planning a meal and going out, you know, finding a recipe and going out to the market and getting the groceries and bringing them home and then preparing the meal and reaching out to friends or loved ones, you know, to join you at the table. But once you're there sharing that meal and that conversation, right, the burden disappears and you're just basking in the delight and the joy of it. And so that's what good burdens are all about.
0: I love that. And I underlined the threshold of effort quote. That would just blew my mind because you really then start thinking of your practical life and how that is so, so true And I feel like there was this movement or trend even around self-care being like tucking yourself away, turning your phone off, cancelling on everyone. There was like memes on Instagram of like a cat with a turban being like me time. And I felt like we were going towards this phase of I don't need anyone and I'll just shut the door to everyone in order to kind of make myself feel better. But actually self-care can mean the opposite, can't it? It can mean going out there and being really active in your decisions and seeing people.
1: Absolutely. There's um, a meme going around. So Jomo is kind of my thing, right? The joy of missing out. And so um, one of the most popular definitions is, Um, disconnecting as a form of self-care and just staying in, just as you described, like putting your bath bomb in, right? And like peace out world, like I'm not going to connect with you. And I've always pushed back on that definition because to me, it's actually the opposite. It's about entering into the joys that the real world offers us. It actually demands more of us. So I really like that you're pointing that out.
0: Yes. And I feel like your book is so comforting though. You're not, telling anyone off or saying you're doing it wrong at all. Um, It's just really interesting how you can like kindly point it out to people. There's like a very gentle way of doing that because you also talk about how this convenience culture, it's great for kind of getting through the day. And obviously I don't have children. You have a very busy life with lots of things going on. I'm sure technology is a massive help to getting things done and planning your life, but there's like, like too much convenience sometimes can kind of be a negative. Would you be able to talk about that cuz you talk openly about your own need for control as well.
1: I think where convenience can stop me up is when um time or life just becomes a lineup of tasks. I'm not mm-hmm. actually entering into anything. Um, And I do have a very controlling nature and it's something that I inherited from my wonderfully powerful and controlling mother, (laughs) who is both an inspiration and a terror to me. Um, But I think that there is an impulse, you know, we, each of us have an impulse towards, you know, I talk about the three C's of big tech, which are convenience control and um, comfort. And I think each of us sort of has an impulse towards, you know, one of them, maybe more than others. And so yes, I like to have the to-do list. I like to have um, our life organized, but I also feel like it is incredibly important for me to notice when I can let go of control. Like if I'm actually really honest with myself. So I use an example in the book of um, working and having one of my kids, we've been obviously negotiating all this online, offline schooling. And so having one of my Younger kids come up to me while I'm working, you know, furiously away and asking, Hey mom, can, can we go and just kick the soccer ball around for 10 minutes? Cause I'm on recess now and actually pausing long enough to ask myself, could I do that? Could I actually like actually do that right now? <laughs> and it surprised me how many times the answer was yes. And getting out in the fresh air and enjoying that, connecting like physically with my body, but of course, connecting with a loved one and the joy and play of that and then coming back refreshed. Um, So I think those are the moments where we need to sort of stop and look at the shape of our days and see where those joyful interruptions can be found.
0: It's so true, because when I think of convenience, I do think you know, like we both talk about in our books, there's a positive aspect of having the convergence that you talk about with all the apps all in one place, and we can do so many things at once. But then also the fact that that can then stop us and hold us back. And the fact that even this morning, I went on Amazon to look up a book that I did want to get. And then I walked to my local bookshop to get that book. And then I had a coffee and I had a chat and I bumped into someone and I came home and I felt like I was part of the world. And that that sounds so great, doesn't it, on paper? And I know that that has like helped my day a million times. But do you think there's people out there thinking, but it's great that we can sort of be so convenient. I don't want to kind of put the burden on myself, like you say.
1: I mean, what Albert Borgman will write about is how lifting any burden right. There is a cost, right. Whenever you replace one thing with another, there is a cost right to that. And so choosing for you to choose not to purchase from our friend, Jeff Bezos and walk to the local bookstore and buy from Susan Miller or whoever, you know, that person is, right. There is a cost. There's a cost in terms of time, um, what you could have been doing with that time instead. And so that's where I love that you're really calling people to reconnect in your book to, you know, what brought them alive as kids and what brings them alive in their own lives and really weighing those cost benefits out. Is it the burden, right? Of getting up out of my chair for 45 minutes to go to in the world. is is that, um, is that trade-off the right trade-off for me? Because it is really personal. Um, all of these sort of Um, you know, digital detox. And of course, you don't write about that. I don't write about that. That's not the approach I'm taking, right? All of those sort of baseline, like you're just going to solve the technology problem by like disconnecting X amount of time. Like these answers, those are not the answers Mm -hmm. because we're going to live with technology for the rest of our lives. So we really do need to find a way to live joyfully with it.
0: Yes. And this is what I love so much is it's, it's this taking of technology, which is can be good and and bad and neutral. And just being like, what is serving you and what isn't serving you? And maybe it's not going into a cabin in the woods for a month without your phone. Maybe that doesn't serve you either. Maybe it's like this middle ground. And I love also that you talk about productivity culture in the book and how there was actually a bit I underlined because I was like, oh my God, that is literally speaking to me and something that I brought up with my life coach recently, which is this idea of if I slow down, then my career will slow down and everything I've built will go. And what I love about your book as well is that you're, you're sort of really telling us in a very realistic way that a lot of these fears, when you actually see you like paint a picture of what they are, they sound slightly ridiculous, like the idea of our joy being taken from us. I think that's a huge thing for people. So would you be able to talk a little bit about that, how we can look at these things that we're like panicking about? Because our phones have made us panic when actually mm-hmm. we can kind of just take that space.
1: Yeah. Um, a huge realization for me was actually in an interview that someone did with me. And you'll remember this from the book, Emma. Um, and someone asked me, a, I, I, I just answered an honest, a question honestly in an interview. And what I re- heard myself say to this person was all of the best things that have happened in my career and, and in my life had nothing to do with me controlling them. Yeah. And it just kind of shocked me like, whoa, it's true. Like the times when I've been like really true to myself, like my whole career in this field of digital wellbeing started with this weird impulse to ditch the internet for a chunk of time and instead write a letter on a typewriter every day and mail it to a friend as like a kind of weird experiment. And then that like, snowballed into this whole other thing that I, did, I didn't expect. And I have a situation right now um, where I'm trying to control, right? Like how the book is, get, my new book's getting out into the world and how I'm managing my career. And it's such a difficult time as a self-employed person to like make any plans in terms of like, well, that's true for, I think everyone listening, um, right? And And just what's happening right now in the world. And then what the most exciting thing that's happening in my life right now is something again, where I had this like, personal impulse to write a handwritten note to someone really important to me and some like magic is happening over there career-wise for me. And it had nothing to do with like the strategizing or the controlling my message or the like working, you know, every minute of the day, it really had to do with doing the thing that was right in that moment. And I think the big fear is like I write about in the book, FOMO, right? the fear of missing out, it is constantly feeding us three messages. It's telling us that we're not doing enough, that we don't have enough, and that we are not enough. And so just by counteracting those voices, like eliminating them, eliminating them from our feeds, any any message, any organization, any brand, where when you look at that, when you consume that content, you're hearing one of those messages. You, we do have the power to eliminate those things and start moving from being fear-led to being what I would probably call joy-led or love-led um, in our lives.
0: Yes, because I, you know, this book does touch on COVID, which I really liked because I felt like it was meeting me exactly where I was now. There's a bit where you lay out really clearly, actually, some of the, dare I say, positives that have come out of this last two years. Obviously, that's a massive caveat that it's awful and we all wish it hadn't happened. But looking at that list that you write out around, you know, realizing how much our family needs us when we might have sort of assumed that everyone was fine. Actually, everyone really needs each other and we really need to be honest with each other in the fact that we have probably slowed down in our careers more, a lot of us, because we've had to. And, you know, I'm generalizing, but I do think a lot of people have had that moment of like, wow, I've changed we had lived with that FOMO for so long and then suddenly things changed. So was that a part of this book or do you think you were going to write this book anyway?
1: I did start writing this book during the pandemic. Like it actually, like the, the deal came together and the writing happened, you know, in large part during the last two year period. So um, no, the answer is no, I didn't. I didn't plan to write it before. I think that's so interesting that you're pointing out that we didn't have so much of a, we didn't experience as much FOMO um, during the Mm -hmm. pandemic simply because there was like all of a sudden this great leveling (laughs) of the human experience. Everyone is indoors. Everyone is suffering and experiencing the same thing. And like, what are our commonalities and what you're referencing in the book is this list of things we realized. And I think that's the great opportunity that we have right now, even so many of us are still right kind of in it. And hopefully we are going to be entering back in very fully, you know, later this year. Um, but what's essential and what's not essential and what are we going to carry forward with us? How much work do I really need to be doing? How, how much, how often should I be connecting with that particular person and like having it in the calendar? So that doesn't get lost right. When the busyness of life um, you know, ramps back up. I think there is this incredible opportunity to carry um, yeah. Carry these things forward.
0: For sure. Because I, found that massively during the pandemic that the FOMO went away and you connect with each other more when there's no like imagination going on. I felt like no one was imagining everyone else having more fun. We knew they weren't. We actually knew that no one was seeing their friends. Whereas I feel like FOMO for me is so Mm -hmm. in my own head. I'm imagining that everyone's at a party except for me when actually there's pretty much probably loads of people like me who like say, staying at home and being introverted. Um, so I don't know how much of of FOMO is kind of made up versus real.
1: Well, so. all of it's made up. Like we're missing out all of the time. 100% oh, of the time that we're missing out. I love this bit. Yeah. <laughs> we're missing out all of the time. And I love, I just wrote it down. The imagining went away because that is what it is. It is the imagining. It's imagining that people are having, yes, maybe you're missing missing out on going to that party, but you're probably imagining that party to be much better than it really is.
0: And also the facts around loneliness really jumped out to me in this book. I think there's a statistic around, I don't have it open, but that most people have got like one person that they can count on if that. And suddenly, I had this feeling of gratitude because I was thinking, well, I can count on like two hands, you know, people that really mattered to me, which I always thought wasn't that many. And then you think, okay, that th- I really am living in a in a in a strange um, fantasy world if I'm not realizing what I have.
1: Yeah, the yeah, the stat is from the American Sociological Association, and yeah, the stat is that most people have one confidant, if they're lucky. It's not even it's not hundred percent, you know, it's like, if you've got one, you're doing really, really well. And that ties back into the grant study, which I write about, um, the Harvard grant study, which is the longest longitudinal study of human flourishing in history. And basically their great finding is, was that the greatest indicator of health and happiness is warm relationships. Having a couple of key warm relationships in your life is, is the core indicator for like financial success, emotional flourishing, right? All of these different parts of our lives come back to those warm relationships. So if you have a 10, Emma, you're like golden.
0: (laughs) That's what I really like about the book is it's making people feel okay. And, And more than okay, actually, like you've kind of, you've got this. And also I think sometimes when I read books that are practical, I feel quite overwhelmed. Whereas when I was reading your book, even that, which is like, hey, focus on your warm relationships and everything else will figure it, figure it out, was just like, oh, I can do that. You know, that's really, it's practical, but in a way that's not really scary. <laughs> it's just like, focus on this one thing and you'll be okay.
1: I'm so glad. I The last thing I want to do, and that's true of any of my work, um, the last thing I want to do is for it to be another thing on the to-do list. I really want to defeat the object, it would defeat (laughs) the object of the whole thing, right? None of us have margin, and it's primarily our digital lives that have stolen any margin that we have. And so for me, really, it is an orientation towards what gives life, being attentive to that and nurturing those things. And that is really achievable. And I'm so glad that that came through in the reading of the book.
0: It really, really did. Before I move on to my next question, actually, I just wanted to read out this bit that I've um, bookmarked, because this isn't like a guilt trippy bit by the way of anyone listening who's like oh you're on your phone too much but it really stood out to me like the amount of time our technology is kind of taking from us and i and i point this out in disconnected because i'm like i know our screen time is really bad at the moment and it's fine if it is because life is hard but these this really just made me think i actually wrote oh god into the book <laughs> you need to says- send me a picture send me a picture okay. <laughs> Instead of spending the 118 minutes you'd likely spend on social media a day, you could, over the course of your lifetime, go to the moon and back 32 times, watch the Simpsons series 21.5 times, goals, climb Mount Everest 32 times, run 10,000 marathons, walk your dog 93,000 times. And even though it made me think, oh God, I really needed to read that. I really needed to read that because it's such a reminder that where we put our attention really is our life and we we do make sacrifices every time we put our attention onto something and i know that you talk a lot about in the book what are you willing to give up basically to have the life that you want how did you start making those first steps cuz i know that this all comes from a personal place as well
1: i think it was deepening my love for the things that bring me joy <laughs> and just hungering for more of them. It's honestly as simple as that. And it did start, you know, way back in my offline experiment where for 31 days, I was completely off of the internet and realizing how much margin in my life I had given away to just all those five minute and 10 minute and 20 minute check-ins and realizing I could bank them for things that I really wanted to do, like read and write poetry or make art collage. I like doing lots of weird, small creative projects, Um, calling my grandmother, things that I say, like I had never had time for and sort of that, that starting there and then keeping that awareness growing over the years. I really do believe that we're not going to solve the technology problem with more technology that it's really about creating the positive conditions for other engagements to thrive and flourish, literally creating your digital and your physical environment. You're surrounded by the things that bring you joy. I have, I'm going to show Am- Emma can see it you, and I'll describe it to you. So I have with me, whenever I'm doing something really important, can you see this? Yes, I can. <laughs> it's a little, I just- yeah, describe it.
0: It looks like, well, it's got your initial CC on it, but I can't really tell if it's like what it's made of. It's just a little piece of felt. And my my friend's daughter, Clara,
1: lovingly sewed this for my birthday. Uh, I don't really know what she thought it was going to be, but to me, it looks like a superhero badge. And so I have this superhero badge with me when I need to be a superhero, (laughs) when I need courage. And so this comes with me a lot <laughs> in my life oh, i put I it in that. yeah and so it's such a simple and thing but it really does matter the things that we surround ourselves with um and so yeah in terms of my own journey it really has been you know and it's two steps forward one step back right it's not mm-hmm. it's not straightforward it really is um giving myself grace to make mistakes and then recalibrating and reorienting to things that bring me alive. Something I write at the end of every chapter of good burdens is that the goal is aliveness and the purpose is love. And I really do believe that to be true, that if we begin living lives so rich and full, right, that we just love our screens really do begin to dim in comparison because there's a dullness and a sameness on the internet when we're not using it really intentionally. And then it just starts to become boring. <laughs> we're like I've got better things to do.
0: Wow. I love that. Cause you talk about the badge in the book and oh, now yeah. I got to see it. <laughs> you, I did. So for anyone who is really curious about that because i know you don't talk necessarily about the 31 days offline in this book i don't know if you talk about it in your other book which i do need to read what did you learn from that i mean what was like some of the really standout moments because i've never done it i am super curious in what that would be like because i've taken breaks before and i found that i will i will go back on twitter after having a bit of a break and it will be like a a highway it'll be like a motorway of cars And I will feel so overwhelmed. And I would think, wow, that was something that I got used to. And now I'm not used to it. It's freaking me out. Right. Yeah, that's such a good way of putting it. Um, So
1: that's I write about the experiment in my first book, The Joy of Missing Out. And the biggest thing I found after the sort of like classic detox (laughs) days of like nervous twitches, like I want to go and like fix my blog or like, you know, check an email or whatever. You can't do those things. Um, was just the quietness of mind I had. It just felt so quiet. And I just had this clarity, like just things were clear. You write about it a lot in Disconnected, about knowing our true desires, knowing our, our true loves, like the things, like not being influenced, right? Being influenced only by our own knowing our own desires. And so that really is what happened online. I had a clarity of mind. And what I mean by that is I had a clarity of what my own mind was, what my own thoughts were, what my own creativity was. I wasn't questioning whether the thought I had was actually someone else's thought that I had read somewhere, but I had forgotten it was somehow in my subconscious. I was like, probably going to like, you know, plagiarize them because I'd heard it somewhere. I didn't have any of those fears. I knew that those thoughts were my own and it also just made it really easy to spend time locally um cuz i didn't really i didn't have anything to connect to beyond what i could see and touch um and so that meant you know relying on neighbors I I did still have my telephone. So I'd call my mom for things and she got really annoyed. She'd be like, I just Google that stuff. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, just like, just, you know, um, you know, not everyone loved how reliant I became on them for certain (laughs) things, but, um, but even that was an education in terms of the way that I related to other people. Um, and when you can't rely on Google, you have to rely on other people like as simply as like, where's a good pizza place? Like where's the best pizza place, right? We we become so reliant on the algorithm um, that we stop relying on other people. And so that was another really big takeaway from that experiment. Yeah.
0: That's interesting because then you must have missed some of the good stuff then of the convenience part, the small convenience part of of being able to kind of have more of that autonomy over your own life (laughs) yeah because i know mo gaudat has said in the past who has also come on this podcast and he he lives his life without checking the news because he knows if it's super important he will find out via word of mouth and then i kind of thought in my head if everyone does that no one will ever know any news but i do love i do love that because i think we could all read it less
1: Mm mm-hmm yeah, no, absolutely. I'm I'm quite similar to him in that. And that is actually what happened to me during that offline experiment. I would go into the coffee shop and the big
0: stories, everyone was talking about them. I didn't miss mm-hmm. out. Or you could just ask, right? Yes, so yes. That happened to me once actually when I was taking a bit of a news detox and then I went into a cafe and the guy working behind the bar was like making me a coffee. And he was like, can you believe XX has just happened? And I just, and it, and it, you know, it was kind of, that moment of oh i really can't escape this even if i want to and i it's quite nice to get it from a, another human being but um so how did you reintegrate yourself back into the online world once you kind of knew all of this stuff about yourself? Cause I'm guessing you wanted to maintain some of that as well. Mm -hmm.
1: I mean, it was very gradual, sort of like a water fast, you know, you don't want to like gorge (laughs) on food right away. You literally make yourself sick. And so it was, um, I think the first thing I went back to was email and I just started calling my list and you talk about it and disconnected too, right. Calling my list of newsletters and just content coming in there that had accumulated over many, many years And then it was, yeah, I gradually brought other things in. One thing I did miss was email. I was doing quite a bit of freelance writing at the time and I had two um, essays I had to file that month and I hadn't got them done before I started my experiment. So I had to actually save them onto, if you can even remember what these are, a USB stick and mail them in the post. (laughs) to my editors and one of them got lost and it cost like an arm and a leg to send them. I, I got, and I did I was like, yay for email, like, you know, filing those stories for free, you know, in nanoseconds, like that's a positive thing. And so, you know, there were things I was looking forward to coming back to, but definitely with social media, um, I was limiting, limiting that a lot more and had more scheduled calls in my, um, in my diary and my calendar. And one of them, like, not to you know make this, you know, very doom and gloomy, but a, a real thing. And I write about it in the joy of missing out is the fact that I prioritized calling my grandmother, who is very close to during my offline experiment, had some wonderful conversations with her um, in that period. And she died later that year. And I just and it still gets me. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I would have had such huge regrets had I not prioritized her more that earlier that year. I would have had huge regrets about that and I'm incredibly grateful that that just is the way that it worked out. But the reality is is when we pay attention to one thing, right, we're choosing to pay to not pay attention to another. And um and there's a question that a uh, philosopher of technology James Williams writes about which is he asked the question what do we pay when we pay attention? And I had never pulled apart that phrase before, ever. Pay attention. But we really are paying. And he goes so far as to say that we are paying with all the lives we could have lived.
0: Wow. Wow. Right? Yes. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: That is really, really powerful. And I guess with this whole topic and and the fa- and when you look into the research of why we are so much so addicted to our phones i mean what was re- what really stood out to me was this i this f- fact that so many of us are numbing ourselves with our phones like it like any other substance it's like you have a glass of wine and life doesn't feel as full on you scroll through your phone enough times you can feel that like numbing that like dull feeling of like oh i've kind of blocked out my real feelings by binging or gorging on something Mm. and I think what you just described is like so real and so special I'm so glad you got to do that and I feel like a lot of us are fearing what we would have to look at in the eye if we weren't numbing ourselves because the reality is you know not to sound morbid but you know the people that we love are not going to be here forever that's like a really that's a hard thing to stomach unless you put down your phone and really have a think about that. And the easy option is to not think about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, but your book reminds us of all of this stuff. So, <laughs> And
1: really, I think where Good Burdens came from, yes, it came from, you know, originally, um, you know, encountering the work of Albert Borgman, but it actually came out of um, an interview that I did with Dr. Ellen Langer at Harvard, um, she sort of popularized the study of mindfulness and she was talking to me about her definition of mindfulness, which is simply, and I love that it's so simple. It's actively noticing new things and something unlocked for me when I was talking to her when I was, cause I'm all about joy, right. In the study of joy, that there was something around joy that required our attention and our effort. And that we needed to notice what those things were and we needed to nurture them. And so for me, that's what good burdens are all about is noticing and nurturing the things that bring us alive and bring us joy. And they may be online and they might not be online, but we need to be attentive to those things. And you're right. It does hurt a bit and it is scary to share our joys with other people because we have this weird fear that if we share them, they're going to like somehow be taken away from us or like someone's going to shame us for them. But the truth is, is like, I don't know, maybe it's not true for everyone, but when I see people like even you, Emma, like I love your style, your style is amazing. And like, when I see that it makes me like want to pursue more of my own style, more of my own joy in the world. And so the idea that it's going to somehow be taken away from us or that it's scary, to begin examining these things, I think we need to confront those, confront that and say, is that really true? Coming back to the fear thing, right? Like, why do I have a fear about that? Do I really need to fear it?
0: But it's true about the infectious energy of someone else's joy, because, and this is where it kind of confuses me slightly with why we are all so living in FOMO and fear when actually, when I read your joys, because in the book you you inspire the reader to write their 100 joys and reading your joys made me want to write my joys down. And even reading your book made me excited to write my book today. So I don't really understand sometimes why we we, we struggle with other people's like achievements on the internet when actually I want people to do well, but I still live in FOMO sometimes. So like, you know, maybe you don't have an answer on this, but it's just kind of interesting how they're like jarring with each other.
1: That's a really good point. I don't have an answer for that. I don't have an answer for why there's some days where I can just like bless others and their success. And there's other days (laughs) where I just cannot.
0: It all diminishes. I think when you do lean into your joy and I know full, I, I know as a fact that the more I'm just doing my thing, I can then be happier for others. And I think you can tell when someone's happy in their own career and sort of just staying in their lane and like just wanting to celebrate others, which I really love. Um, I just wanted to say, because for the people listening to this episode, I find it really cool that you're called the Marie Kondo of digital, which I know is like people love to put that in a headline when they talk about you. But where did that come from? And do you like that analogy? Obviously, it's a great thing. But where did that come from? It, It emerged in an
1: article. I think it's the idea, right, being known for joy. And so the idea of sparking joy in your digital life, Leads to spark joy, which is Marie Kondo. I mean, I feel really honored by it. I think Marie Kondo is brilliant. I think the idea of examining each part of our digital life and asking ourselves, does this spark joy? And you write about it that exact thing and disconnected. I noticed that right away. Um, is a fantastic way to approach it. Uh, I do a slightly more complicated versions where I ask, you know, when you go through your social media fees, asking, does this bring me joy? Is this important? Do I want to bring this with me, you know, forward into the world, but just simply asking, does this spark joy is a lot simpler. So I know I, I like it. Um, I'm going to, I'm probably going to lean a little bit more into it. I want to honor her and her yeah, work. And yes. so not steal, steal away from that, but no, no, I like it. It's
0: good. I really like it. And I really like the fact that you kind of know what you're getting with that because this book really is helping people unpick their intentional, relationship with the internet, or at least turn it into an intentional one. Because something I also loved, which I know I'm going to actually practically take on now is what is life giving and what is life taking this idea of like, what's draining you and what's giving you energy. And I wrote recently about spoon theory in my newsletter, which is like the idea of having a certain number of spoons every day. And it was someone with a chronic illness actually came up with this terminology of, if, you're, if you've got a chronic illness, you might have three spoons. Whereas if you're someone with full health, you might have 12 spoons, but everything takes a spoon. So like, if I went to a party tonight, that would take two spoons, I reckon, because that would drain me quite a lot. And then if I went for a coffee tomorrow morning with my best friend, I would get those two spoons back. Mm. And it's sort of this idea of like energy exchange, essentially. But How did you get to that realization that we can really tell? Like, we just have to be more mindful, I'm guessing. Like, you do something and then you think, okay, I feel more drained or I feel more energized. Like, you talk about it in the book really well, but it's like a practical exercise, isn't it?
1: It is, and it's actually an age-old contemplative practice that originated with Saint Ignatius of Loyola. So it is very old, and it's sort of been repackaged and renamed by lots of different, you know, behavioral psychologists and self-help gurus and these types of things. And then, of course, with the Marie Kondo of digital me. Um, (laughs) But the question, the questions simply are: you ask yourself at the end of each day, and you can write it at the top of just a plain piece of paper, two columns. What today was most life-giving? And what today was most life taking and just over time, you know, building those lists and the beautiful thing about this is by bringing those things into your awareness, you're going to begin right orienting your life more and more towards what gives life because we're not going to intentionally continue to choose life taking things Or if we do, we'll have the awareness, like you were saying with the spoon theory, right? That if I choose to do that, right, it's going to take a bit from me. And so I do need to fill my cup in a different way.
0: Yes, because the hardest thing I find, and this is going to make me sound like really lucky. And I guess I am with my job, but the hard thing for me is turning down the things I would like to do because they sound really fun and realizing that it's still taking me away from the stuff that I love. Mm. Um, And that's a hard thing, learning how to kind of, say no to that but it is simple maths it's like we have finite time so what are you saying yes to and oh I just love it I feel like um this has set me up for the year (laughs) I'm gonna be able to be able to uh make more sense of my my environment because you do talk about Alcoholics Anonymous in the book which I thought was super interesting because we all know sort of what that is but actually the tools that 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 are used in that environment if you actually take them in a little pipette and like put them in another little dish you can use them for anything
1: Mm -hmm. yeah that line in the serenity prayer that they pray at every meeting you know the wisdom to know the difference right between the things that you should and should not do um so powerful Emma, are you okay if I ask you a question? I have a question for you. Yeah, of course. So it's from a quote uh, from the interview you did in person at Book Bar for your book, Disconnected. And um, you said, quote, I really don't like those manifest your dreams overnight books or anything that's easy, I'm like, why is the self-help book saying that I can change my life in three easy steps? I don't think we can, but what we can do is look at our lives and make smaller changes. And my question is, where do you think this resistance to ease or the promise of ease comes from? Does it come out of like your own experience and
0: your own work? I'm just
1: really curious. That that like right away got my attention.
0: Oh, thank you. Well, it makes sense now why I loved your book so much because you're essentially saying, This is not easy, which I like. I like the honesty in someone being like, here's some tools, but you kind of have to really put some work in as well. I think that when I wrote the multi-method hyphen book, which was about redesigning your career, it's such a huge topic. And I found that I wrote quite a long book on it, made it quite clear that this is a really difficult thing, but here's sort of my tips or my advice or my experience but not necessarily telling people what to do. And what I found was a lot of people that came to the events wanted a really quick and easy step. And they sort of fast forwarded over the book and they were like, yeah, 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 yeah. But um, how do I do it tomorrow? And that's not me like putting a blame on anyone. I think it's a byproduct of the culture we live in. And I think people get confused at why things take longer than they think it should. There's like a frustration in the air of, well, where's my thing? Why haven't I got it yet? And I think my career has been quite a slow burn, actually, if I really look at it. I think I've been doing this for like over 10 years. And I think in the last two years, I've really seen like quite a big shift. And I think that's quite fast, even that. So I don't know, I have a real aversion to that. I have a real aversion to, and I don't want to say like American self-help because I feel like that's so generalized, but like the Tony Robbins thing from the 90s, has now kind of gone down and funneled down mm-hmm. into a lot of books that I'm like, I don't think any of these are helping.
1: Yeah. Yeah. The 10 year overnight success stories, right? It's <laughs> like This overnight yeah. success, like, um, <clears throat> and that's where I find, and I used to do this with my podcast. I used to tell listeners like how many hours and how many people it would take to create each episode, because I think, right. We look at reels and we look at whatever, all of the content we're consuming on a regular basis. And we have absolutely no imagination back to imagining what it actually took (laughs) to create that thing that you consumed so quickly. And with so much judgment about how it could be better, how it could be different. Um, I think we do a service to people by explaining more and giving more backstory to the ways in which things are created it's a conversation we have with our kids really regularly i want my kids to know that none of this is overnight that everything requires attention and effort and those things those are the ways we know in which we love a thing because we're willing to put that effort in
0: yeah Yes. And you're so right. I think we need to be a bit more accountable to other people and to ourselves to, to be more honest, because I don't blame anyone for scrolling through Instagram and thinking everyone's got this overnight because sometimes, I mean, I'm probably guilty of this where the backstory isn't like told over and over again, obviously, but even this podcast I've been doing for like six years now, that's a long time. That's actually a really long time. And also You know, the fact that even with fertility, you know, like pregnancy announcements or or people getting the keys to their new home, you don't really get in the caption, the really long winded story because everyone has one with how they got there. So, yeah, it's kind of cutting each other some slack as well, isn't it? Absolutely. I wanted to end on a question about you writing this book because I love that you wrote so much of it outside. You paint such a nice picture of sitting sitting on a picnic table, I think, and Mm -hmm. you were sort of listening to the sounds of nature. And I love that because it sounds so obvious that why do we have to sit inside and write? We don't have to, but I've never done that. And I'm probably going to try it now. (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: Well, I think I already did quite a lot of that before the pandemic, but the practical reality was I was at home with four other human beings full time. Yes.
0: Talk <laughs> about so, carving out time. Yes, I mean. that's
1: right. That's right. And so for me, having the change of scenery was so essential to the creative work, but I found, and it's, it, it comes back to so much. We've about we've, what we've talked about today in terms of what brings us alive. As soon as I was sitting at that picnic table and I could hear the bikers, you know, doing this is in high park in Toronto. It's the biggest park, like imagine Stanley park in New York, but this is our big park. And so, you know, there's cyclists and they're big boisterous loud. They have to yell at each other, right. Cause they're going so fast when they're on their own bike. So they're yelling behind me and there's the birds and, and it just, it brought me alive. It just fed the work. And so I just needed that energy. So obviously I couldn't do it every day, but when I could, I would go to the same um, dark green beat up picnic table and work there for free. Right. That was the beauty of it too. It's a hundred percent for free. I wasn't paying for office space. This is the gift of, you know, the city that I live in the country I live in um, to be able to use that space. And it connected me to the wider world. And it did sort of, help me take these divergent thoughts and weave them into a whole. and i think when we're in the real world um it allows us more easily to do that because we do more easily see that we're part of a whole and you write about that a lot in disconnected about being part of a community um and the ways in which our choices impact others and so that was more easily for me easy for me to see out in the world
0: yes yes again it kind of goes back to that environment piece of like how do you set yourself up for the success by really putting yourself in the way of it which i really really love well thank you so much i i had so much to ask you so i feel like i've crammed it all in to this episode but hopefully we can do more things together and talk more about these topics because we're both just so passionate about them and it's really it really is infectious this book i think that it's going to help so so many people and it's really beautifully written as well There's so many stories in there and anecdotes and you get a real flavor of a very full life that you live and I yeah just want to say thank you for it and thank you so much for this conversation
1: thanks so much Emma this is amazing thank you